Um, so the, the title of today's talk, An Arbitrary Outcome, Political and Economic Regulation of Mobile Labour. Um, the empirical focus is in West Africa um, and Europe. Um, so to begin with, I'm going to talk a little bit about the research and the, the um, ethnographic focus and the role of journeys within the research project. Um, and after this, um, I'm going to go more into what shapes the journey, um, both on the local level and then more broadly on the structural level, so the political and economic factors in migrants' journeys. Um, I'm just going to take a second. Okay, so um, this the, the two pictures on this first slide um, I mean, they're showing mobility and borders. Um, and what I really want to get at today is um, what kind of um, influences migrants' mobility and what prevents them. And um, as you can tell from the title, I'm going to say in many ways it's arbitrary. Um, but there, there are still many, um, we still have explanatory factors. So to begin with, um, the focus of my field work. So this was for the PhD. Um, and it was in 2007 to 2008. Um, the PhD was completed last year, and then, um, as Ian said, it's coming into a book. Quite a lot has changed since 2008, um, so I'm going to discuss some of these changes as well. Um, but the, the research was based in, um, mainly in Senegal, Mauritania, and Spain. And I think one of the most important things to say about the research methods is that I wasn't focusing on a particular route or network or um, channel. So the idea was to go to different locations between West Africa and Europe, um, speak to clusters of migrants and see how the regime plays out at particular moments. So rather than trying to um, kind of look for a particular channel, it was about... Um, capturing the differences and also capturing um, failed migrations, aborted migration attempts, um, people who are stuck in transit and all the different outcomes of the journey. Um, so, so in Senegal, the main focus was on um, uh, sending and non-sending households, people who've been repatriated or people who want to migrate and trying to establish um, changes in labour and migration over time, uh, the kind of economic and social resources that households have, um, the use of remittances, how decisions are made, destinations and different channels. And um, I'm not going to talk today about the causes and consequences, um, though I might allude to them a little bit and show um, what the journey tells us about that. So I'm going to focus um, completely on the journey um, and how it's shaped. And then in Mauritania, um, this was researched as a transit country. Um, so I was speaking there to clusters of migrants from sub-Saharan Africa in Nouakchott and Nouadhibou um, mm -hmm. and discussing their journeys, the kind of processes that went into decision-making, experiences with controls and future plans. And then finally in Spain, there was research around Catalonia um, with West African migrants and trying to establish the migration dynamics again. So that was possibly the most journey focused part of the research um, because I was trying to establish how people had um, got to Spain from sub-Saharan Africa and to look at the patterns. And then um, there was also an element of the research which was participant observation. 
So um, technology isn't on my side. I might have to use my finger if not the, the clicker. Um, okay, it's going somewhere but not on the map. <laughs> so so I'll just um, show this this part of the research was to follow migration routes within West Africa and try to connect those with journeys to Europe and establish the kind of decisions that are being made on the way and what's influencing um, people's channels. So there, um, this journey began in Uakshat, um and then we went across the border into Senegal at Rosso, which has Mauritania and Senegalese sides, then to Dakar and then um, eastwards to Mali and there were a few border crossings here between Senegal, Mauritania and Mali. So this was a case of establishing kind of who's charged at the border posts, how they're charged, um, and what kind of experiences people have with customs, and then back into Mauritania and towards Nuatshot, um, sometimes seeing on the way people who are able to go to Europe and seeing how this links with established patterns of trade in West Africa. And then there was a second journey a year later, which was from Magadougou um, to Elinkeen, which at that time was a um, it became quite a popular um, place to depart for Spain because there were controls around this um, region, around Dakar, um, because there'd been lots of journeys by canoe before then. So, so there were EU patrols here and migration was moving down the coast. Um, okay, so that was the research focus. Um, and the journeys, um, I mean, it was mainly participant observation but it also had quite an important role um, later on with interviewing migrants to, to kind of find links with, with their journeys and um, kind of be able to understand um, how journeys are shaped. Um, and there are, there are many outcomes of migration. So this is just to show a couple of them. Um, so, so this is kind of the journey within West Africa. Um, this photo here um, kind of depicts transit migrants who um, who were in the north of Mauritania and staying there for a longer period of time. Um, so this this was George who had planned to um, take an onward journey towards Spain but instead he opened a restaurant and stayed there and kind of um, advised passing migrants. Uh, people may also stop and work um, and uh, in this case it's in the fishing industry and people are processing fish. Um, and then other outcomes are um, that people are stuck in the desert, this is the area between uh, Mauritania and Western Sahara, or going to the sea, so this is a, a mural to try and um, prevent people from taking the boat journey from Senegal. So how, um, okay, so uh, just to show that the migration is very kind of um, unpredictable, um, this is a sample, it's not very scientific, it didn't actually go into the thesis or the book. But this is a sample of 10 migrants who I encountered in Barcelona who were using services from a local um, centre. And when I asked them about the countries that they passed through, um, this, this shows quite a lot about um, the range of routes that people take. And also, um, I'll come back to it later, but um, differences in class. So, so you can see people who have um, gone to Malaysia, South Korea, um, this was a case of somebody from Nigeria, um, and also to Germany and Austria and Australia, 
um, whereas other people had gone purely over the land route through um, West African and North African countries. Um, so, so what I'm going to say a bit later on is that um, we can't really generalise about um, people who are migrating through these channels and say that they are purely wealthy or the, or the poorest. There's, there's lots of convergence um, between different circumstances. So, um, I just want to explain now um, how we can kind of characterise this migration. So, I've been very descriptive so far. Um, so, in the West African context, um, there's a regional history of labour mobility, um, particularly described by Samir Amin, but the um, colonial economy was, was based on um, labour migration from the hinterland to the coast. Um, and then post-1970s, this changed, and the, the range of destinations really diversified, the routes diversified, and, um, you know, on the face of it, there was a kind of convergence with the um, voluntary migrations in the north. Um, but actually, it reflects more um, political and economic crises, in, for example, in Ivory Coast, Ghana, Nigeria, um, massive expulsions, um, also conflict in Sierra Leone and Liberia. So it was a, a very chaotic period of time. And at the same time, um, from the 1970s, the EU was closing its borders. So established migration patterns into the EU were, were also disrupted. Um, so uh, there was a migration workshop in um, Codesria in 2008 where it was described as a kind of suicide crossing um, because people are going into the sea and into the desert and um, it's an incredibly dangerous journey. And post-2008, um, uh, I'm not sure if I have so much time to go into the changes, but um, the borders have really been reinforced um, both by the EU and by the US. Um, the, the border that I'm concerned with is um, between Mauritania and Senegal, and here um, the EU's been training border guards, so the, the controls are much stronger. This changes the dynamics a little bit, um, but I'm also going to show a little bit later on how um, there's actually continuity and how it fits into a, a longer-term pattern. Um, so um, uh, we, we can't uh, get anywhere near the numbers or statistics. Um, so Heinderhaus estimated in 2008 that between 65,000 and 120,000 migrants go into the Maghreb from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, of which between a quarter and a third go on to Europe. So this is a very broad estimate. And from my own observations, um, I couldn't get any more precise than that. So, so that's why the journey is extremely important here, um, because what happens in between the leaving and the staying, we have um, lost numbers of people who are, who are not countable and um, barely observable. Um, and I'm, I'm calling this stepwise migration because people, um, they leave their home with very little um, and then they stop to work on the way, they take several steps, they, they might stop in many, many countries. Um, but it's not a pure use of the term stepwise migration um, because uh, Dennis Conway in 1980 described it as a process, as a, as a kind of spatial hierarchy where people would take steps um, to kind of um, better their circumstances in their houses, but uh, sorry, their household circumstances. But this is um, 
too unpredictable and, and there's no kind of stable route being carved out. It's, it's very chaotic. Um, and the other characteristic of this type of migration um, is that um, it's very fluid between channels of labour migrants who um, have left to look for work, um, transit migrants, so, so people who might have been on their way somewhere and then got caught and stayed as a labour migrant, for example, um, working in the fish industry over here. Um, refugees might also join this channel um, and also people who've been repatriated from Europe, but repatriations are not always to the uh, sending country, they, they might just be to a transit country. Um, so all of these channels converge um, and people move between them. So, uh, you know, people, people who've crossed through Mali and Libya as labour migrants um, will become refugees and then they might become labour migrants again. So it's a, it's a very broad channel of migration. Um, so, uh, just one example of a stepwise journey <coughs> was someone who'd taken um, five years and he, um, he went from Cameroon to Chad, Chad to Libya, Libya to Algeria, Algeria to Morocco, um, mainly by bush taxi, some places he trekked, um, he also um, travelled by camel from Chad to Libya which took three to six months, and um, people died along the way um, uh, as a result of scorpions and, and um, you know, other desert dangers. Um, and he stopped to work in Libya for a while, um, but eventually reached Spain after five years, um, leaving many people behind who, who didn't make it all the way to Spain. Um, so, so what shapes the journey? I talked a little bit about the role of wealth and power and have mainly argued that it's not um, connected either with the poorest people or with the people who are relatively wealthy. Um, a common assumption is that only the wealthiest people will attempt to migrate to Europe. Um, the, the way that I want to... Well, one example to show this kind of distinction is from speaking to a Ghanaian migrant who was in Barcelona and talking about his route, and he actually informed that route which I showed earlier that, that we went from Magadugu to Alenkeen. Um, so he explained that at the time he migrated from Cape Coast, um, people who had um, money or, or enough to pay for a journey would go uh, to Mauritania with a plan to get to the coast and then pay for a, for a boat journey. People who had no money at all would instead go to Libya, um, where they would work, and then try to fund the onward journey. Um, but it, it doesn't work out like that. So you see people in Mauritania who um, they might have seen how, how dangerous the journey is and decided to stay. Um, people might be able to go th straight through Libya. So um, it's not a form of migration that needs wealth or social networks. Um, people leave with nothing. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit later about the kind of structural um, causes of people leaving, but it's not with a particular network or with a um, job at the end or, or with people to, to seek or stay with. Um, and it's really dependent on chance. So, so there was um, somebody who travelled from Sierra Leone to Barcelona. Um, 
his his family was um, impoverished. Um, they had crops, but they couldn't sell them. Um, and he travelled around West Africa. He tried to find work in Ghana um, and in a few other countries um, and didn't manage it. But then he... Um, sorry, he's not from Sierra Leone. He, he was from Nigeria. Um, but he ended up in Sierra Leone um, working in the fishing industry and he managed to get a free journey um, just by explaining to the captain um, that he had no money. So uh, it's very common for people to get the boat um, without any money, either by friendship with the captain or um, possibly through having particular skills um, like engineering or, or medical skills or um, just knowledge. Um, Considering the role of age and generation in the journey, um, what I found with migrants from Senegal um, in the particular study on the coast um, in the Dakar region um, was that they were the first generation, so um, parents hadn't migrated, but they were starting to because of local processes of um, dispossession. But there are new and old patterns of migration, and um, there's a need to kind of disaggregate um, by age and also by gender. So, so even though there's a, there's a kind of trend um, for migration to become feminized, um, there seems to be a lot of evidence from West Africa that it's still um, highly gendered um, rather than sort of male and female channels converging. Um, and one of, one of the questions in the research was um, to ask um, who, who's my, why, why do those people migrate? Are they the oldest, the youngest, the richest, uh, the bravest? You know, who, who ends up taking the boats or trying to go to Europe or going into the Sahara? And um, one, one quite typical um, response from a parent in Rafisk was um, no one could imagine that her son would try clandestine immigration. He didn't seem the type and there doesn't seem to be a type. Um, and, and also, why do some people succeed on the journey and why do other people fail? Um, this is another thing that's quite arbitrary. So there was a um, Gambian migrant who explained, um, when, well, when I asked him how he managed to get past the Moroccan guards, um, he said that at that particular time they needed someone to translate and they, they were trying to speak to some um, English speakers and, and couldn't so he kind of worked as a translator and they let him through so it's, it's opportunistic. Um, and then to show even more how, how based on chance it is, there was a um, Nigerian migrant in Girona and uh, she explained that when she got to the Canary Islands, um, she'd also kind of been <coughs> crossing North Africa for a year. And she reached the Canary Islands and uh, she explained when she arrived, um, they let some of us come, some people they deported, it depends on luck. And similarly in um, Rafisk in Senegal, um, one uh, one person who'd attempted clandestine migration five times said, in the case of Senegalese, if one group of clandestines is repatriated, the next group will get through. So um, it's, it's, after all the kind of time and investment that's gone into it, then um, in that case, there's a kind of 50-50 chance of being repatriated. Um, and then another migrant explained um, 
that although the EU is against clandestine emigration, Spain has a lot arranged for <coughs> receiving clandestines. So this is what I want to go into next, the more structural factors um, that, that influence the journey. So um, the, the broader theory of, um, well, my thesis and the forthcoming book is that competing political and economic agendas um, create an instability and influence the journey. Um, so it's these kind of tensions between borders and labour markets, um, which I was showing on the first slide as well, the, the kind of tensions between mobility and borders. Um, so the numbers are uncountable, as I've already explained, and um, there is a consistent flow of people towards Europe, even though there are... Um, people constantly being held up at the same time. So, um, as one migrant explained, they cannot stop people. They'll try to control it, but they can't stop it. Um, before there was no one in Mauritania taking the risk, they go from Morocco. But when they block Morocco, people started in Mauritania. If they block Mauritania, people will start from Libya. When they block Libya, people will travel to Tunis. And when they block Tunis, the people will start from Algeria. Um, and this is what we can see unfolding since 2008 really that um, you know one example is in the past couple of months um, Spanish border forces have gone to Isla de la Terra which is a, um, a, a kind of a rock off the coast of Morocco where people are trying to go um, because other options are failing so um, there's a constant, well, as, as many people know, there's a kind of cat and mouse game between um, migrants and borders, but the, the flow continues. Um, so, so migrants themselves know that migration can't be prevented, but also on the individual level, people will be stopped and will be sent back. Um, so, so one migrant from Ghana who'd um, been repatriated to Mauritania from Spain explain that his worst experience was his repatriation from Europe and he likes to think some people will make it even though he acknowledges that um, some people do so um, I mean really I've talked about the tensions here between mobility and borders but also they kind of converge um, because states can use, use these tensions to control labour so um, from looking at Spain, there are um, oscillations here between amnesties, um, regularizations, and expulsion orders. So there are populations of migrants who at one time might um, be regularized, at other times might be expelled. Um, there, there was an example of this happening in the same spot in Barcelona that um, that one group in 2001 were um, given a legal status and then from the same area people were deported. Um, so um, again, there are these, it's, it's arbitrary and um, unpredictable. Um, so there are numerous outcomes, but at the same time, migrants are essential to economic growth in Europe. And um, people go towards um, Spain because there is a, a message that um, people can succeed. It's a calculated risk. Um, it's not a kind of search for, um, for wealth or gold that, that people are going blindly into it. Um, but other people have succeeded. The first people who've taken the boats are remitting. Um, those households are stable, while um, people who haven't migrated, their households are, un are unstable. So... Um, 
it's, it's not a kind of delusion that's leading people to try and go towards Spain, but um, the knowledge that there is a labour market um, and that people can succeed when they go, even if it takes years of um, being homeless or um, being imprisoned or being under risk of expulsion, then eventually um, there might be the opportunity to send remittances back. And even since the crisis, um, I mean, unemployment in Spain has reached 47% um, for youth unemployment. But even since then, there are, there are certain sectors um, which still depend on immigrants. And this is particularly true in Catalonia, because um, agriculture is the biggest contributor to its growth. And so far, there isn't so much competition between migrant workers and Spanish workers, well, um, the possibility of migrants working in construction has come to an end because there, there is competition and construction is virtually halted. So it depends on the economic sector. So um, I'm going to draw to a conclusion now. I think I've rushed through to try and compensate for all that time. So hopefully um, we'll be able to have a good discussion. So. I just want to conclude on um, asking why is, the journey is why is the journey important and what are the implications? So I've been quite descriptive and I want to show the broader implications of um, focusing on the journey. So um, I think one important outcome of the research is um, that there is a distinction between... Um, it, well, Samir Amin in, in 1995 claim that there was a distinction between migration of people and migration of labour. So you don't have a migration of people from Africa towards Europe, it's a migration of labour. And the distinction there is that um, when it's a migration of labour, it's a case of going into a host society rather than actually going and continuing your society or, or changing that society. So, um, so he describes that as a labour migration. Um, so the kind of critique that arises out of it is that migration research often focuses on the successful migrants. Um, this can be seen, for example, in a lot of remittances research, that it looks at the massive flows of remittances um, that go from um, Europe or the US into the global south, um, and, and how this transforms um, livelihoods and how it's an opportunity for development. But um, I think it, it neglects the danger of going there, the years it can take to go. Um, and in the case of Africa, there really aren't any stable options of going to Europe at all. This has changed dramatically since 2008, that um, EU policy doesn't provide at all for a, a stable form of migration because even the highly skilled forms um, the, the, the kind of regime for highly skilled migrants is still dependent on the needs of the labour market and can come to an end if the labour market doesn't need people and then people go into the um, unstable channels and this is, this is quite a common occurrence that people go from legal to illegal migration. So um, it's highly unstable in, in summary and also um, another critique is that a lot of research of West African migration to Europe focuses on um, kind of agency, the, the um, cosmopolitanism of migration, which is undeniable. Um, people do learn different languages and are extremely resourceful. 
Um, but I think we need to remember the, the kind of structural elements that are bringing people there at the same time. Um, and also, I mean, I am closest to the structural approaches from the 70s and 80s, from Robert Miles, Robin Cohen, um, Mayasu, who, who took a particularly structural approach to labour regimes and examined um, what causes people to leave, um, what causes people to enter particular labour markets, how this becomes reproduced, how it becomes a migration regime, how it underdevelops sending communities. But these structural approaches, um, approaches also didn't look at the in-between and the areas of negotiation and the kind of alternatives that migrants find between sending and receiving place. So that's why um, it's been a great privilege today to focus on the journey and bring that to the forefront because it's been particularly central to the overall research findings. And I'll end that there.